Welcome to the Techstars Climate Tech Podcast, where we dive into the climate change crisis and discuss how technology and innovations can help save our planet. We're your hosts, Cody Sims and Hannah Davis. Join us as we talk with sustainability experts, investors, and founders about the issues we're collectively facing today due to climate change and how entrepreneurship can help. Today on the pod, we have Andrew Beebe, Managing Director at Obvious Ventures. Obvious Ventures is backing world positive companies and has been a huge supporter of companies in the climate space. With Andrew today, I can't wait to talk about the really important topics of energy and electrification, chatting about how we move from a basically carbon-based energy world to renewable sources of energy. And over the next decade, what that's going to mean to things like our power systems, but also our transportation systems, our agricultural systems, the built environment. Obviously, so much of our world relies on having access to low-cost energy. The real movement here is the movement to hashtag electrify everything. Andrew, I can't wait to hear your thoughts on all this. Let's start with a bit about you. Can you share a bit about your own personal journey, your focus today, and about Obvious Ventures? Thanks for having me, Cody. I'm excited to be here. The firm was started about seven years ago by my fellow partners and co-founders, James Joaquin and Vishal Basish, along with Ev Williams, who is the founder of Twitter and Medium and some other stuff, well-known in Silicon Valley. And they came together with the simple purpose of trying to back purpose-driven founders who were transforming trillion-dollar industries. So we look for great folks, just like Techstars does, with a real purpose and mission, and being able to apply that purpose, mission, and drive to really transforming the biggest industries of the world. So that means food, healthcare, education, transformation, finance, etc. I joined them right after the firm was founded. And my objective was really to help lead and drive our sustainable systems practice. We focus on healthy living, people power, and sustainable systems is pretty broad. But today, what it means is a focus on mobility, building systems, and some aspects of the energy economy. And that includes climate tech and carbon tech today. It's led us to investing in all sorts of companies like Proterra, the electric bus company, Lilium, the electric flight company, Ampli Power, electric fleet management, as well as Mosaic and Insighton and Enervy and others in the energy space and plant prefab and others in the building space. And I came to it with excitement for that sustainable systems focus because I had spent the last almost 15 years in the energy space myself as an entrepreneur. We're all ex-operators at Obvious, and I had run venture-backed companies over 20 years, first in the internet era, in the 1.0 back in the late 90s, and then in 2002, focusing on energy, first solar and then broader aspects of energy later in my career there. You and I were business development partners back in 1999, which was uh, quite a time ago. <laughs> Crazy. Crazy. I think it just means we're old, Andrew. <laughs> I think there are lessons to take from that period too, both in terms of bubblish issues, but also the potential for transformation and the time frame for transformation. I love that Gates quote about we always overestimate what we can do in two years and underestimate what we can do in 10. And that happened with the internet for sure. It's happened with clean tech in a lot of ways in the early aughts, and now we're seeing it manifest in ways that I think are going to surprise people with how quickly it happens in some categories at this point. 
today we're going to go deep on electrification, in particular, the opportunities for startups to leverage the electrification and decarbonization of our energy markets into innovations in some of the biggest sectors of our economy. You recently wrote a great piece titled, We Have Entered the Climate Decade. People should look that up if they haven't read it yet. And you really spend a good chunk of the article talking about how market trends that are driving renewables and electrification adoption right now are taking shape. Start us out by talking through the changing market trends, particularly around electrification. I find this line of work really humbling and obvious in particular. And one of the reasons the firm's named obvious, we engage in things that are eventually going to be looked at as obvious. And when I talk to my kids about the early days of solar and how no one believed it was going to happen and no one thought it could get to the price that it got to, roll their eyes and say, oh, come on, Dad, this is like a solar panel. It's so cheap and it's got to be the easiest way to make energy, like burning things and digging it out of the ground. That just sounds crazy. We see the same thing in electrification. Another piece that will looked at as obvious today is something I wrote, I think, five or six years ago called The Coming Electrification of Everything. And in that piece, I boldly laid out that all cars would be electric someday and even flying things would be electric, like drones and even passenger vehicles. Already, most of that looks boring and obvious, right? And today or yesterday with Mary Barra's announcement about GM going fully electric, I honestly think a lot of people looked at that as, of course, that's happening. Look at Tesla or look at Volkswagen. It's extraordinary news. Car makers saying internal combustion engine will be like in 2000, kids were saying, what's a newspaper? In 2030, they're going to be saying, what's an internal combustion engine? That's a big deal. It's almost like you look back at the old photos of London from the 1800s and you're like, how do people live under all that smog and soot? They're going to be saying the same thing about our current environment, right? Increasingly, I think a lot of our core thesis is obvious, but there's a lot more to be done. Uh, I was just on the phone this morning talking to an entrepreneur about executive at a big electric vehicle company talking about what is the ecosystem around that's still necessary, i.e. what could a venture guy like me go invest in that they would see as valuable, either for themselves or what he wish exists in the world that you as a big automotive company can't do. And that list is pretty long. Right. I think everything from really cool companies, we're not investing in span IO, but I think it's a great entrepreneur, a great company helping configure homes so that they are much, much more dynamic in the way they interact with vehicles, batteries, the grid, solar on the roof, everything. These are boring nuts and bolts things that happen to exist in the daily life of every single human in the modern world. Anyone who has a normal grid powering connected to their home has fuse boxes and combiner boxes and things that are helping make that system work. Those things all need a major upgrade. I would say there's a ton of attention right now on the decentralization of the financial economy. And you're talking about basically the decentralization of the energy economy in terms of how it even interacts with our daily lives in our homes. These are like snowballs that you can see gaining mass from the top of a large mountain. Solar is so now woven into the fabric of America and most economies developing and very modern that we don't think about it as much anymore. But in fact, most of the economic gain is yet to come in those categories. So yeah, a modicum of penetration in solar today, it's just that we don't hear about massive innovation that's necessary or super cool startups or the next Elon Musk in solar because we don't need that anymore. We just need mm-hmm. massive asset allocators to realize, oh, that's a better yield than treasuries. We might as well 
go put our money behind these solar farms, these wind farms, these distributed systems. And that's what's happening now. So we'll see that scale up in category after category. There are a bunch that have not yet hit that inflection point, and a lot of them come around mobility, electrification, batteries, and infrastructure to support them. It seems like particularly storage and transmission are the new frontiers in the the move to solar, which is in scale-out mode, but there's the sort of energy and transmission spaces where there's a lot of venture activity happening right now, a lot of startup activity at least. And just like you said, how electrons get shifted around those from production to consumption and back and forth. Totally. Solar is like a really strong knife or something, but batteries are like a Swiss army knife. They can do Mm -hmm. everything. Solar does one thing really well. It makes power when the sun is shining. It doesn't make power at night. It doesn't do a bunch of things you'd like, but it does one thing really well, and wind generally functions the same way. Batteries are Swiss army knives. They're magical things. They can power our cars, they can power our homes, they can give power away and then take power back. They can act as shock absorbers within the grid at large scale and at mid-scale, high voltage, low voltage, DC, AC. There's just a ton of cool things that batteries can do for us. And I think we're only now realizing the span of their utility, at least broadly. If matter is energy at rest, let's talk about some of the biggest parts of matter that humankind have created, which is our built environment, whether it's offices, buildings, roads, residences, it's arguably our biggest footprint on our earth. By most estimates, it accounts for nearly 40% of all greenhouse gas emissions. When I fly around the sky guiltily, I haven't done it lately, but when I have in normal times, I look down on cities and can't help but think from 10 or 20,000 feet up, our cities almost look like calcium scale deposits on a pristine surface, right? They're these crustaceous things that are unnatural. It's for our own betterment. It's clearly an encroachment on the natural world, but a necessary part of modern society. So a very broad question, which is, what advancements are you tracking today in terms of how decarbonization is making its way into the built environment, whether that's energy efficiency, whether that's biomimicry, whether that's advances in material science like lower carbon concrete? What things do you think have a nearer-term market horizon? And what things do you think are on the 10-year timescale that are looking as potentially viable, really early-stage investments today? And what things should founders be thinking about if they're looking at any of these types of spaces for their next endeavor? I'm a fan of Peter Diamandis, who created the XPRIZE and does a lot of great writing. I think he had a book called Abundance, where... He basically talks about the potential of our ability to feed the planet, our ability to generate much more power than we need, and what that world of abundance looks like if managed correctly. It's a very optimistic view in many ways, but I think that it can be instructive as a thought experiment to play it forward a little bit. So one version of that for me is asking the question, what if every utility in the world only offered 100% renewable power to every customer? That's an interesting thought experiment because I think there's some double counting in terms of the carbon emissions of buildings. A lot of that is, let's call it scope two. It's stuff that takes place outside of the building. A lot of that is utility. And if those utilities offered us 100% zero carbon power, it might change our views of buildings. And I personally believe we're on that path. I think that in California, we're definitely on that path. Hawaii, New York, Massachusetts, others. But I really think everywhere, we're very much on that path. And so we have to be careful. What exactly are we solving for in what time frame? Because if the time frame is 10 years from now, because that's maybe when a lot of new codes and buildings and systems get implemented for new stuff, then are we going to be at 100% renewable at that time scale? And I think for a lot of places, we'll be pretty close. All that said, 
building buildings is definitely inefficient. Building buildings definitely uses more carbon than it could or should. And thus, I think that there's real opportunities in the building of buildings. We are an investor in plant prefab, in block renovation, in reno run. These are all bringing mm-hmm. efficiency and in some cases could bring a lot more sustainability, not just carbon related specifically, but other aspects of sustainability to the systems. And in plants case, they absolutely are, right? They're building mm-hmm. carbon negative or zero homes. And there's a lot of options in terms of making sure that every home is solar ready, et cetera. And they do all that today. I think that there's more to be done in terms of materials and building materials. And you mentioned one, but the concrete issue is extraordinary or cement issue and figuring out how we can transform the way we make cement. It's really tough. It's pretty powerful stuff. It's used all over the world. And yet inherent in its production is a CO2 output that is not tenable. So I'd love to see solutions there. Same with steel production. I know a number of startups are working hard on that, which I think is a target-rich environment. It's very tough, but I think that there's a lot to be done there. And then, of course, in building management systems and distributed generation and the management of buildings in a distributed sense, I think there's a lot of value to be created. But again, we should be careful. If we do all that, and we bend over backwards to make sure that they can all generate all their own power, we should be sure about what kind of benefit we're trying to create. Because if all the power going in from a utility was green, zero carbon, what is the exact objective of trying to generate all your own power? And if the objective is, well, we're also coupling it with batteries and we want it to be a resilient system and we want it to be a grid asset, maybe that's good enough. But we should think ahead about those choices. Thanks for your thoughts on that. And there's so much opportunity and space there, I think, for transition. It'll be interesting to see what plays out as truly things that startups can go tackle and what require much larger scale development infrastructure, which I think is the case in a lot of climate related technologies, right? That's some of the big uncertainties is how much capital is needed for any one given idea to be realized. That's Interestingly, I think the EV market and transportation is an area where this is playing out right now in real time, particularly in the distributed charging networks. But let's go one application layer higher on the stack from the infrastructure of cities to the vehicles that help us get around them and travel to and from them. So looking at transportation as a sector when it comes to electrification, EVs, as you said, quite clearly, obviously, the future in terms of personal and mass transport. That's in scale-out mode right now. But what's next in electric vehicles? Air travel has its own challenges. Rail shipping has its own set of unique challenges. And then micromobility is its own space. I'd love to hear your thoughts on where all of that heads and, and what opportunities there are for entrepreneurs. And then I have a personal interest in also what happens to the existing infrastructure that's out there from today's gas stations and today's oil refineries. Like what happens to all this stuff that's out there all over the world that's very large today in terms of footprint? I've been an electric car driver for, I don't know, seven or eight years, starting with a Nissan Leaf and and a hybrid before that. But I feel guilty. I pull into gas stations just to use their air compressor. And inevitably, it's a dumpy thing in the back corner, and it's got a coin-operated thing. It's always broken, and the coin pieces, and I go in, and they say, you know what, I'll just turn it on. I offer to give them money. They say, no, I'll just turn it on for you. And I want to say to them, like, hey, how you doing? Are our residents <laughs> dropping? We're in the Bay Area. We're in the densest per capita EV population in the country. And I 
worry about small businesses that do get impacted by that. Same thing, we just don't take our electric vehicles into the shop that often. You could say fossil fuel companies are evil, I don't feel that bad, but the maintenance and the shop work and the dealership business models, which are really tied directly to maintenance of vehicles, all of that is going to go through a massive transformation. But you also outlined a lot of the target areas that we're focused on very well. I think the ways to think about the amount of impact we can have, at least on a unit basis, you could almost track to how visible vehicles are. When people think about their own personal vehicles, these are highly regulated today, so they're actually quite fuel efficient. There's so many of them that it doesn't matter. We should electrify all of them anyway. But as you go down the list of things you don't see as much, start with long-haul trucks, but then go to cargo planes, and then go to rail cars, and then go to container ships. All of those things are barges. Those are less and less regulated as you move down that step. Mm. And as you might guess, the less regulated, the more polluting they are because they're not having to compute that externality in their own costs. And Mm. thus, it is very cost-effective because they're subsidizing that mode of transport with the planet Mm -hmm. and with all of us in, in the air we breathe. I think a lot of the most bang for the buck on a unit basis will show up in those different modes. And I think there's a lot of exciting things going on. So in electric flight, we're investors in Lilium, which is an incredible company that is the case with a lot of things in this sort of abundant future, going to have a tremendous impact on air quality, but it's also going to have a tremendous impact on life. They will be able to move people from a city like San Francisco to a city like San Jose in 15 minutes or from Washington to New York in 45 minutes for the price of what you might pay for an Uber Black. That's insane. That's a world changer, right? People will move to different areas because of it. It'll change real estate values. It'll change the road systems, et cetera. So that's great. But major polluters today are long-haul flights. And that's a lot harder, just like long-haul trucking is harder. But it's doable. And there's a company, Universal Hydrogen, which is getting attention right now, looking at hydrogen supply chains for long-haul shipping, long-haul flights. I think that's got promise, but we have to solve that problem. We have to solve the jet fuel problem. And then, of course, shipping, marine fuel. They're burning the the worst of the worst in many Mm. cases in Mm. big marine settings. And it's extraordinary. Like The upside there in terms of what we could sub out is profound. So I'm not a big hydrogen fan, but if I ever were one or fuel cell fan, that's a place where I would look. There's a bunch of electric marine stuff that happens inshore for barges and for ferries, et cetera, that I think has tremendous promise. You see some of the startup innovation there, maybe not happening in building new shipping barges, but potentially in the fuel innovation that will power them in the future, as well as the ancillary connective marketplaces that may rise up around them. Propulsion systems, right? Right. So boundary layer technologies is working on hydrofoils for shipping container ships, which is incredible and sort of crazy idea. Then in rail too, a fleet of great companies coming out to really upgrade the rail market and then drayage and ports and mid-range shipping or middle-mile shipping. So many opportunities. Oftentimes those go hand-in-hand with automation or Mm. autonomous vehicles. So there's just a lot of exciting things happening in that zone. Underneath it, there are the battery systems and the control systems to help make them work. And as is typical, five years ago, I think BMS software just looked really small as a market size, and it's going to look a lot bigger. We talk about heavy machinery. Let's shift from transport into another big sector that uses heavy machinery, but people often don't think about it as being fossil fuel dependent, but that's the agriculture sector. You don't get crops without 
using giant tractors, giant combines, et cetera. Pretty much all the produce that we produce is planted and harvested by these large machines that run on diesel or gas today. They're transported across the world in fossil fuel emitting transportation as we just went through. And they're kept cool in carbon emitting refrigeration today. As we electrify, how do you think our agricultural process will change? Most of the focus on agriculture as it relates to climate is focused on regenerative ag practices, but it feels like electrification also plays a large part in the transformation of our agricultural sectors around the world. Any observations or thoughts you have there? And there's fertilizer too, and the fertilizer production and the chemistry that goes into that has been a very carbon-intensive arena. The reality is that I don't know enough about the exact size of those markets. I've looked at some electrification plays there, but more autonomy plays. Hmm. And my sense is that when those two things are joined, you're going to see a much better opportunity. Electrification in and of itself in certain sectors without some ancillary benefit, I think has a tough time. In rail cars, there's a ton of benefit if you can couple autonomy with electrification. And I think you'd see the same thing in ag, and that's what we've seen with more robotic ag. I do think that the carbon opportunities there do come in regenerative techniques, but also in digitization. There's a great company called Vents, which is like collars for cattle that are free range and allows you to create virtual fences is where the name comes from on massive plots of land where you are normally spending a ton of money and also creating some environmental nightmares where cattle get too close to waterways and things that they shouldn't be doing and can create really negative impacts on the ecosystem. If done correctly, cattle can have great impacts on the ecosystem and on bird systems and on turning the soil and regeneration. I think companies that are taking interesting technology and digitizing, not just decarbonizing, could have big step functions too. You mentioned fertilizer, obviously, as being a big part of the ag economy that does need to decarbonize. The last topic I want to touch on with you is how electrification will play into our supply chains and our materials. You look at a material science today, and so much of it is based on the petrochemical industry, right? You look at large companies like BASF, Dow Chemicals, DuPont, etc., and a lot of what they're producing is byproduct from the petroleum industry that they turn into other things. I'm curious, as we move to an electric power economy and hopefully have less petroleum byproduct, what do you see happening in the material space and just generally across supply chains? Sure, I'll get a little bit over my skis if I'm not careful here. So I'll say on the chemistry side, we have a strong practice. My partner, Nan Lee, leads a strong practice within obvious around computational biology. We've invested in a number of companies in that space, one of which is Zymergen, the most public company that we talk about in terms of using computational biology to make more biochemical processes that allow us to not have to rely on the petrochemical industry and more simplistic biochemistry so that we don't have a lot of negative byproducts when we're making a better adhesive and there's a lot more biomimicry in that process. They're very successful in doing that. We have a couple of others like Recursion doing that with the pharmaceutical industry and some others that will show up later in terms of what they're trying to manifest with CompBio. Another big opportunity within supply chain is creating a level of transparency that I think when you ask millennials why they only buy from brands they trust and eat things that they really understand, there have been great writers and people who have helped influence their thinking. But I think ultimately the internet 
gives you access to total transparency. You really could understand, hey, what's a natural flavor? I'm going to Google that. Like, I don't know what it, natural flavors are not natural. When it says like natural raspberry flavoring, that's not natural. It just means it didn't come from oil, but it doesn't mean it came from a raspberry. People tend to understand those things. And then once they understand them or like, why is corn syrup bad? I think I'll Google that. They don't really go back. They don't go back and say, okay, I'll keep drinking because I don't know. Why not? So I think that transparency is powerful for consumer behavior. It is not afforded to a lot of other aspects of our supply chain. Walmart, I think very famously, has told their upstream suppliers, we want to know a lot more. We want to know about your labor practices. We want to know about your water practices. We want to know about your carbon impact of this doll that we're buying and putting on our shelves or of these masks that we're buying to help people with the pandemic. Those ingredient labels and details of transparency haven't existed that well in the past. It's just been a box with a thing in it that came from somewhere far away. We're now demanding a lot more like we do of our consumer goods. And that, I think, too, is a one-way street. We'll never go back. When we can understand the ingredient labels in a deep and meaningful way of everything that we buy and consume, I think we'll insist on that forever. And so the scope three Ingredient labels are one part of the sustainability and just interest in understanding everything about what we purchase. I do believe there's going to be a new class of accounting tools for enterprise that allow us to look deeply into that upstream supply chain. And I think it's going to be a very investable category. And I hope a lot of entrepreneurs dive deep in that area. I got one last question for you, which is, what's one piece of advice you have for entrepreneurs embarking on a climate-focused endeavor? I've been an entrepreneur for a long time and an inventor for less time, but I hope that people bring a research point of view to the work that they're doing. I know they do as entrepreneurs. Just know that you probably know a lot more about the domain that you're embarking upon than the people you're pitching. And it doesn't mean you can't learn from them. It doesn't mean they could have contrary points of view that are of value. But if you have great conviction and if you're passionate about a particular objective, please listen to the critiques and figure out if you're missing something. But I think sticking to your guns and really knowing that it's going to be your passion and drive that gets you through the ups and downs is really more valuable than trying to mold your own vision to better fit the objectives of somebody's fund or investment thesis. Well, Andrew, BB, Obvious Ventures, really appreciated having you here today. Got to go deep on electrification, what that means for startups, what that means for our world and for the decarbonization of our planet. And thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening today. We really hope you enjoyed the discussions. Also, applications are open until May 16th for our Techstar Sustainability Accelerator in partnership with The Nature Conservancy. Check out the episode notes for links and more information. See you in the next episode of the Techstar's Climate Tech Podcast.